Pray with me. Father, thank you for your word that gives us hope. You said to the Romans, to the Apostle Paul in Romans 15, that you are the God of hope and that we have the scriptures because in them is our hope. And uh, that is how you minister to us, uh, your promises and the certainties that we rest on, the certainties of what you have guaranteed to bring to your people and accomplish for your people and for your kingdom and for your glory uh, in this world. And we we long for the accomplishment of the establishment of your kingdom. We long for um, justice to be realized. We long to have the fullness of our salvation realized, resurrected bodies, being in your presence, seeing Christ. What a, what a profound and incredible reality to think that we will see the risen Christ, that there are glories and majesties of your holiness and of your kingdom that we can uh, only begin to fathom. That one day uh, we will know by sight, no longer by faith. And so, Lord, we want to be encouraged by these truths. And so as we look at them together, we pray that you would uh, open our hearts to the wonder of all that we have in our inheritance in Christ. And Father, we do continue to pray for those in our own congregation, that uh, those who are having some uh, struggles and uh, who have had work uh, either reduced or put on hold uh, now during this coronavirus, uh, we ask that you would give them uh, a solid and a broad and a deep faith um, that trust in your goodness and your providence that will provide for them as they seek first your kingdom, knowing everything else will be added to them. We thank you for the demonstration of a faith that we already see in those who are having to uh, look past the immediate uh, circumstances to trust you for what you will provide in the future. And so, Father, we thank you as well for how the body of Christ comes together to meet the needs of each other, too, to meet the needs of one another as we know that they arise. And so that is a demonstration of your life in us. And for that, we give you praise. We thank you for preserving those who have been sick while it's not been easy. Uh, a few that have been had the COVID-19 and yet you have preserved them. And so for that, we thank you. We do pray for uh, Jim Consiglio's mom, uh, Carol, who is older in her eighties and has the COVID-19 and has uh, some pre-existing conditions. And we ask that you would be merciful to her. And if you would see fit to heal her, to restore her body, um, if you would see fit to take her, uh, we ask that her soul would be secure with you. And she does make a profession. And so, Lord, we trust that that is a genuine trust in you and that she would leave this world to be immediately in the presence of your glory. Father, we pray for Lolita and Shannon as they're there in California, that you would uh, give them grace to... Um, to have comfort in the sadness of Lolita losing her sister, that you would give them grace to be a clear light among family members, especially those who don't know you, to be a witness for Jesus Christ, and that you would bring them uh, safely home and reunite them with the rest of their family. And Father, we pray now as we uh, again look at your word together. Be our teacher, Holy Spirit. We pray these things in your name, Jesus. Amen. Uh, as I mentioned at the beginning, while we were waiting for people to kind of start filtering in, is we are this morning going to be looking at the issue of the rapture. 
And next week, we're going to look briefly at the Millennial Kingdom. But this morning, we're going to look at the rapture. And this is a, a, at the heart of what the church longs for. The church longs, we as believers, long for the return of Christ from heaven, where he now is at the right hand of the Father, making intercession for us, where his enemies will be are being put under his feet, where he as head of the church is ruling and reigning. But he is not with us. He is with us by the Spirit, indeed, by the Spirit of God. We know the presence of the risen Christ. It is, he is the Spirit of Christ. And we know the presence of the Father. But we want to gaze on his glory. Jesus himself said that he longed for that time when we could see his glory in John 17. And we, we want that. And we want to be with him. And we long for his return. And we long to see him and to worship him. And we long to see his kingdom established. We want to see justice on the earth. If there's one thing that we see so plainly is that this earth is full of injustice. It's full of dishonor to God. And we know that when he establishes his kingdom, there will be righteousness and there will be justice and there will be joy and there will be holiness and there will be truth. And all of these things will reign in the world. That's what we long to see. And quite frankly, that's um, what we have an assurance will happen. We long to see his glory vindicated, his people and his truth, those who are maligned and ridiculed, those who are the brunt of this wicked world will be vindicated when he returns in his glory. And we long for that. We long for that. But really, beyond all of these things, we long for his presence. That's what we long for. That's that's at the heart of genuine spiritual life. As a matter of fact, Jesus said this is eternal life to know him to know the only true God in Jesus Christ, whom he has sent, whom the Father sent. We long to be with Christ. We, we long for fellowship with him here as we seek him, but we long to be with him. We long to be with him. And that is, in fact, the hope of the gospel, that we will be with Christ forever. And there is a sense in which that begins, is initiated, not a sense, there's the reality that this is initiated uh, at death, to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. We, we mentioned that just very briefly last week. But ultimately, we want that experience in our resurrected bodies. We want to be resurrected in our the fullness of our conformity to the resurrection of Jesus Christ and to be with him and to live with him uh, in that way. And so this longing for his presence is at the heart of our desire for his return from heaven. And that brings us then to the topic of the rapture, of the rapture. Now, the rapture of the church is, of course, a, is a very large topic. It deals in the category, it's in part of the category of eschatology. In other words, those things that are uh, to take place at the end of this age, the fulfillment of the Lord's promises at the end of this age. And there is no way then in, in, uh, that we'll be able to cover every part of this topic because it is so large that Every nuance and argument and passage and all of that, we, we simply won't have the opportunity uh, to get there. And then the issues that have to be dealt with in these topics are large indeed. It deals with hermeneutics, in other words, issues of interpretation. It deals with issues of exegesis and grammar and those type of things. It deals with matters of systematic theology and even church history and, and all of those things. And so it is a it is a large topic. But the goal this morning is just to to give an overview, hopefully to address the very heart of it, 
And then secondly, with that, to encourage our hearts and to say, what does the rapture have to do with how we are to live today? What impact should it have on our hearts today? Well, let's begin first by noting simply what the rapture is. And so giving a statement on the rapture. We want to define it and then note some wrong views uh, of the rapture that we tend to be more familiar with than what it actually is. So first of all, what is the rapture? What is the definition of the rapture? Uh, well, the term itself, rapture, uh, comes from actually a Latin word, and this Latin word is itself a translation of a Greek verb that's found in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 17. Uh, the Greek term that's translated, we're familiar with, is caught up. Uh, that term is translated uh, rapio by uh, Latin, and then it's from that that we get the term rapture. So rapture has to do with our being caught up to be together with the Lord uh, at his return from heaven. The essential teaching of the rapture then is that this, that Christ will personally, personally return from heaven to bring all who are his to himself to live with him forever. That's essentially what the rapture is, that Christ who is in heaven, will return from heaven, gather all those who are his in Christ, all of those Christians who are on the earth and those Christians who have died, to give them their resurrection bodies, to bring them with him, to live with him forever, and to be with him forever. Uh, this prime teaching comes primarily from 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, where it says in verse 16 through 17, that the dead in Christ shall rise first, and then we who are alive will be caught up with them to meet the Lord in the air. This is exactly what Paul was longing for in 2 Corinthians 5 that we looked at last week. He, he longed to be uh, with the Lord, but in his resurrection body, not to be unclothed, but to be clothed. Now, the rapture has uh, been, is, and we'll look at the various ways that it is understood, even uh, by many Christians today. But, but some, first I want to just consider briefly some of the wrong ways that the rapture has been uh, presented. While the rapture itself is a, is a wonderful truth, it's at the very heart of our longing uh, as Christians, something that we wait for, uh, there have been uh, ways that it's been presented or talked about that have undermined its significance. Uh, and I'm going to mention just two. One is an attempt to identify a very specific date of the rapture. Unfortunately, some of those who, uh, from our view, rightly hold to a pre-tribulation rapture, and we'll talk about that later, but that is to say that Christ will return for his church before God begins a period of seven years of his judgment on an unbelieving world. Uh, some who hold to that part rightly have wrongly uh, tried to predict a date for his return. Uh, we're familiar with uh, many of these. Let me just give you some, uh, a couple that uh, you probably remember. Some of you uh, will remember uh, well. One is by an older theologian named Hal Lindsay, and he understood from the parable of the fig tree in Matthew 24 that it was referring to the nation of Israel uh, which was recognized as a nation in uh, 1948. And therefore, when Jesus says this generation will not pass away till all these things take place, he calculated generations to be about 40 years based on Numbers 32, 14. And from this, he came to this firm prediction that Jesus Christ would return in the year of 1988. That was, that was the year that he was going to return. Uh, well, as we know, 
It's now 2020. He has not returned. That was not accurate. Uh, more recently, in the last decade, we had Harold Camping, who predicted that Jesus would return on May 21st, 2011. That's uh, even a bit more specific. Uh, and this was following a previous failed attempt. He had made a, a prediction once before, actually in 1994, September uh, 6, 1994. Uh, Jesus didn't return on that date. He went back, did some of his calculations and said, well, hey, I've got a new date. It's going to be May 21st, 2011. Uh, and people took this very seriously. Some people sold their homes. They quit their jobs. They got rid of all of their possessions only to find out that lo and behold, uh, Jesus did not return. I think these aren't the only time that this has been attempted, but uh, this is meant to illustrate that uh, these are some wrong ways that understanding his rapture and, and understanding that he will return to take his church is is true, but he has not told us when that is going to happen. As a matter of fact, as we'll note later, our anticipation of it is that it could happen at any moment. It is imminent. It is imminent. And it's not, uh, and those are, those are people who fit squarely within the evangelical uh, tradition, those we would recognize as uh, believers. There are others that tend to be outside of that uh, immediate uh, uh, doctrinal base. And for example, Jehovah's Witness have, have oftentimes thought that, that they could predict the, the time of the Lord's coming. And this is, in fact, the very beginning of the Seventh-day Adventists. It was begun by a prophetic movement by Millerites, by the, the teacher uh, um, whose last name was Miller, who had twice predicted the exact return of Christ. When that didn't happen, other prophets within this movement uh, rose up to try to explain, well, in fact, it did happen, but it was a return of Christ not to earth. It was a return of Christ to heaven, where he went into a heavenly sanctuary, cleansed the temple, and so forth. And as a part of that movement, uh, one of the tenets of it is that they worship now on the Sabbath, which is the Saturday. And they're, they're awaiting also this return of Christ. Uh, but in order to... Uh, in order, in their anticipation and in the very history of that denomination, uh, it was built on this idea that uh, Christ was going to return on a very specific date. It didn't happen, and so what they do? They just they just redefined it. But in all of these and and other other examples that could be given, uh, we come back to Jesus's clear statement in Matthew chapter twenty four, verse thirty six. He says, "Of that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son, but the Father alone." We don't know when Jesus is going to return. He has left that as a mystery. That is something that we anticipate, but we anticipate in faith and we live in light of his return uh, moment by moment, but we do not know when exactly that's going to take place. So that's one error. A second error, a wrong approach to the rapture, is to overstress its importance, to overstress its importance. While our hope in Christ cannot be overstressed, while our certainty in his return cannot be overstressed, uh, we can at times make details of eschatology more important than they actually should be in terms of our Christian fellowship and our witness. Uh, we make details of eschatology or our understanding of the rapture and of the millennial kingdom and sometimes uh, and those type of things as the very center of our unity with Christ, our belief in the gospel. While 
there are, is room for debate and sometimes enthusiastic debate on the fine points of eschatology. These are not reasons to separate from other believers. Uh, and in fact, uh, those are points where there's differences because uh, it is many of these things fall into the category of what Peter said, that some things are hard to understand. Some things are difficult for us to understand. Loving, Christ-loving believers can hold different opinions and have different perspectives. And we should argue those perspectives. We should think and be well-reasoned and clear on the positions that we land on. But we don't want to overemphasize it and make those points of fellowship um, with other believers. Uh, in fact, uh, many times uh, by overemphasizing it, we fall into the error that Paul warned of in 2 Timothy chapter 2. Our conversation leads to the ruin of his hearers. And so we don't want to do that as well. Well, that said, let me move secondly to what are some different views of the rapture? What are some different theories of the rapture? Well, to begin, let me just note that if to hold to a millennial kingdom, in other words, to hold that Christ will reign on earth for a thousand year period before the final end uh, comes and the great white throne judgment and then eventually the eternal state on the new heavens and the new earth for believers. To hold to a millennial kingdom requires a rapture. It requires a rapture. It requires that Christ return for his church before this earthly reign of the Messiah on the earth for a thousand years. We will, of course, get to that millennial kingdom, as I mentioned next week, but here I would simply make the note to hold the millennial kingdom requires that Jesus return from heaven with his people, as is mentioned in Revelation 19, 11 through 15, before this millennial kingdom, before this earthly thousand year reign of Christ in fulfillment of certain Old Testament promises. So the fact of the rapture isn't really a key issue for uh, dispensationalists. Uh, Paul clear, clearly teaches that Jesus is going to return and bring his church uh, to himself uh, before this reign. The most difficult question, however, in different views of the rapture is when the church will be raptured. Not that it will be, there will be a rapture, but when is this rapture uh, going to take place? So the key issue is then the timing of the rapture, the timing of the rapture. And on this point, there are three major positions, three major positions. And again, I'm only going to mention these very, very briefly. And each one of these positions has other variations within it, which we're obviously don't have time to get into. Um, but these are three general explanations of when the church will be raptured, when Christ is going to come and rapture the church. One of those is a post-tribulation rapture, a post-tribulation rapture. Post, of course, means after. And this teaches that the rapture is going to take after the seven tri years tribulation of, uh, that is coming upon the earth, where God will uh, pour his uh, end time wrath out on the earth. Uh, this position holds that the church will go through this period of time. But at the end of this period, Christ will return, take the church uh, to himself, and then uh, establish his kingdom on the earth. Uh, they believe that this is going to be a, a rather uh, basically like a turnaround. Christ is going to return. He's going to bring his church up with him. And then immediately as they meet him in the air, he's going to just come the rest of the way down to the earth and to establish his kingdom. 
uh, again, at the end of the seven-year tribulation. So this will happen just immediately and consistent with the second coming of Christ. However, this view, as we'll look at later, misunderstands the nature of the tribulation, which is the pouring out of God's wrath on rebellious humanity. And it is a time of God dealing with a rebellious world under the rule of the Antichrist, uh, and not specifically with the church, not specifically with the church, although people will be saved during this period. Again, we'll come back to that a little bit later. A second is the mid-tribulation position, the mid-tribulation position. And this view states that the church will go through the first three and a half years of the tribulation, uh, but just before the great wrath is unleashed, which involves this rise of the beast and the false prophet in Revelation 13, that Christ is going to take his church out at that time. So they will experience the first half of the tribulation, but they won't experience the second half of the tribulation. They say is that uh, that there is a unique wrath of God that's poured out uh, on the last half of the tribulation. And it uh, corresponds to the last uh, half of the week of Daniel uh, in the prophet Daniel, who speaks of this final week uh, in which this judgment is to take place. They hold that the two witnesses in Revelation chapter 11 are representative of the church. If you remember, those are two witnesses that are speaking out uh, the truth. They are killed and their bodies are there dead and laid slain. This is in Revelation 11, and then they're caught up back to the earth. So a mid-tribulation rapture would also see the two witnesses as a picture of the church. And they would see the restrainer of Revelation 2, chapter 7, saying that this Antichrist isn't coming and going to rise as long as the one who restrains is on the earth. They would take that to be the church. And therefore, when the church is removed, that's when in Revelation 13, the Antichrist will rise uh, and and have his kingdom and all the devastation that he brings. Uh, this is also known in a variation of this view as the pre-wrath theory, the pre-wrath theory. Uh, the problem with this view is that the whole entire seven-year period of the tribulation is described as the wrath of God. It is part of the eschatological wrath of God. Even as in Revelation chapter 6, they, men are wanting to hide the beginning of this period from the wrath of God and of the Lamb. And so this entire period is referred to as the wrath of God. So, and that is what the church is spared from. It also confuses the seventh trump of the angel in Revelation eleven fifteen that announces judgment with the last trump that is spoken of by Paul in 1 Corinthians fifteen fifty two that announces salvation. So there is a post-tribulational wrath. Uh, view that says that the church will be resurrected at the end of the tribulation, having experienced all of those judgments. Another says that there's a mid-tribulation uh, rapture, which means that the church will go through the first half, which isn't so bad, but be spared from the last half, which is particularly uh, devastating. And then there is thirdly and finally the pre-tribulation ra uh, rapture view. And this, this is the position of Newtown Bible Church. And its definition can be taken uh, directly from our statement of faith. And, and here it is. Quote, Christ will return personally and bodily before the seven year tribulation to remove his church from this earth. Between this event and his glorious second coming with his saints, he will reward all believers according to their works. So this view then maintains that.
that this rapture, the removal of the church on the earth now is going to take place before the tribulation period when Christ will return to receive his church and then take this church, those who are alive and those who are have died in Christ uh, to, uh, to be with him in heaven in resurrected bodies, at which point they will experience the judgment of rewards in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and then later return with him when he comes to unleash his judgment on the earth. And there are some other aspects to that in terms of how that will play out uh, with the resurrection of the Old Testament saints, uh, the resurrection of those who died during the tribulation and the establishment of the millennial kingdom, which we'll look at next week. But here it's simply to note that this position holds that Christ will actually return for his church before the seven-year tribulation period in which God uniquely unleashes his wrath on the earth. Now, with that being said, let's look at a key text related to the rapture. And we've, we've looked at this in part before, uh, but let's turn to it again. And this is in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 13 through 18. Now, this is one of the most uh, extended uh, discussions that Paul has had on the rapture in uh, of course there are many other passages which we're not we're going to I'm going to mention a few of them as we go through but we don't have time to look at them in detail but this is one uh, of the most uh, clear and extended discussions that Paul has uh, referring to this time this time where Christ will specifically return for his church let me read it to you and then we'll look at it more closely and we'll spend most of our time here the rest of our time beginning in verse uh, 13. But we do not want you to be uninformed, brethren, about those who are asleep, so that you will not grieve, as do the rest who have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep in Jesus. For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain will be caught up. That's our word for rapture, remember, from the Latin translation of that. We who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we shall always be with the Lord. Therefore, comfort one another with these words. And that is the comfort. The comfort for them specifically in this context is to know that those of their loved ones who had died in Christ were not going to miss out on this glorious event. And there is the comfort of that same comfort for us as well, but also that we will forever be with the Lord. This is a truth that's meant to be a balm to our souls. Now, what I want to do is just very briefly make a few observations uh, about this passage in relation to the rapture as we go through. First, in verse 13, he explains the reason for this teaching. He, he says, we don't, I don't want you or we, meaning Paul and his companions, do not want you to be uninformed, brethren, about those who are asleep. Remember, asleep, of course, as we're well familiar with, is a euphemism. In the, particularly in the New Testament and the Old Testament too, in some places, 
for those who have died. In the New Testament, it refers exclusively to those who have died in the Lord. They are referred to as being asleep. He says, we don't want you to be uninformed or, or misinformed or ignorant about their condition and about this, their status in relation to this glorious event of the return of the Lord. He says, we don't want you to be uninformed, brethren, about those who are asleep so that you will not grieve as the rest who have no hope. In other words, we don't want you to wrongly have a sadness uh, that somehow those who have already died as Christians uh, will receive a lesser experience of this glory of the return of the Lord. It's return of the Lord. Now, I do need to make one brief note here. If you have an ESV Bible, uh, there is a grammatical decision that was made by them. They connect the phrase uh, with, they connect uh, this verb to lead uh, with uh, those who have fallen asleep with Jesus. And so they translate it this way. They say, uh, they, uh, those uh, that, let's see, that through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. Through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. Um, but this is uh, not as likely. This is not as likely. So the New American Standard uh, has uh, the best, uh, the best uh, translation, uh, I believe, here in verse 13. Uh, it's about those who have fallen asleep, that you will not grieve as the rest who have uh, no hope, and that he will bring with him uh, those who have fallen asleep. In verse 14, now Jesus is here referring to all believers in Christ since the time of Pentecost. Note the key phrase there uh, in verse 14, those who have fallen asleep in Jesus or through Jesus. All of those who have fallen asleep in Jesus. This is the Old Testament saints did not fall asleep in Jesus. This is referring to new covenant believers. Every believer who is in Christ since his ascension and sending of the Spirit in at Pentecost in Acts chapter 2. And this is specifically then Christ's return for his church. Christ's return for his church. Paul has already made this clear as a central component of our hope in Jesus. In verse 19 of chapter 2, he says, Who is our hope, our joy, our crown of exaltation? Is it not even you in the presence of our Lord Jesus at his coming? In other words, you who have believed, you who have received Jesus, you who are going to be in Jesus are going to be the crown of joy and exaltation for the apostles who brought the gospel to them. And all of this will be known at the coming of the Lord Jesus. He's, he's anticipating this, this. This anticipation is a key motif of Paul throughout, particularly Thessalonians. If you looked at chapter uh, 11 through 13, at the end of chapter 3, he says, And now may the God our Father himself and Jesus our Lord direct our way to you, and may the Lord cause you to increase and abound in love for one another and for all people, just as we also do for you, so that he may establish your hearts without blame in holiness before our God and Father, at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all his saints, with all his holy ones. This event reigned and loomed large and significant and was central to the hope of Paul and to the early believers and to us as well. Now, if you look at verse 14, again, 
he's explaining the reason for this hope. The reason for this hope is that Jesus died and rose again. Jesus died and rose again to purchase for himself a people whom he will come to receive back to himself. We believe for, and there he's offering an explanation for what he just stated in verse 13, for the reason for our hope. For we believe that if Jesus died and rose again, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep in Jesus. Now, there's an important note here when he says that God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep in Jesus. The, the bringing with him is not that he will bring them with him from heaven, but he will bring them with him to heaven, as the rest of the passage is going to explain. In other words, he's encouraging with this fact that those who have died will see him return at the same time as you do. And all of those who are in Christ then will be brought with him to heaven, to heaven, to experience what was promised. Their concern is not the resurrection in general. That was clearly understood. It wasn't, wasn't about the fact that there will be a resurrection or all were going to be a part of that. That was a basic part of the preaching of the gospel in 1 Corinthians 15. That was at the very heart of Paul's message to them that Christ died and rose again and that, uh, and that we would be a part of that resurrection. Even the Pharisees understood the part of the general resurrection. So he's not referring to the resurrection in general, as a, but he's specifically referring to this unique event of Christ returning uh, for his people who have died in him. This, this return that will bring them to a place of communion and fellowship in resurrected bodies, which was our hope, which was their, which was their hope. And it's not likely that Paul then would be referring to an event after the resurrection or even during the resurrection, during the time of the tribulation, because if he were referring to that event, then they would have been happy that they had already died. They would have been happy that they would have died and missed the terrors that were are coming upon the earth at that time. If the tribulation was first, then the Thessalonians would be thankful they'd fallen asleep and they would have to not to go through such terrible suffering. So he can't be referring to that. That wouldn't make any sense. So it has to be referring to some event before this, this, this uh, time of judgment that's coming upon the earth. And you say, well, how do you know that that's before a time of judgment? Well, Paul has already made a promise to them, actually. If you went back to chapter 1, uh, verses 9 through 10, he says at the very outset of the le this letter, he says, for they, he says they, that he and his companions had received a report about the sincerity of the faith of this Thessalonian church. And he says how you turned the end of verse 9 to God from idols to serve a living and a true God. And look at verse 10. And to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who rescues us from the wrath to come. So what is this wrath to come? He's not talking about hell here. This wrath to come is the wrath that Paul had preached and it was clear that Jesus had even forewarned in Matthew 24 and others that is coming upon the earth. He's not talking about human wrath. He's right after this going to talk about the suffering of the church. That's a common New Testament theme. 
The church will suffer in this world. It's not talking about human wrath. He's not talking about final wrath in terms of hell. He's talking about the wrath that is to come upon the earth. The very wrath that he's going to mention again in 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. You don't have to turn there where he says we're waiting for God to bring retribution for our affliction. And he says in verse eight of second Thessalonians, dealing out retribution to those who do not know God, to those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. They will pay the penalty of eternal destruction when he comes to be glorified in his saints on that day and to be marveled at among all those who believe. So they know there is a wrath that is coming, a wrath that. The, the return of the Lord will bring uh, on the earth and all of those who did not obey the gospel. So that's the wrath that he says he promises that he saves us from in verse, in verse 10. Actually, in chapter 5 of 1 Thessalonians, again, uh, he says something similar. He says, God has not destined us for wrath, but for obtaining salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us so that whether we are awake or asleep, we will live together with him. Therefore, encourage one another for these words. He's not, he's not encouraging them and saying that they're going to, uh, or here his encouragement to them is specifically that there is a promise for them to put their hope in that the Lord will return and he will rescue his people. He will rescue his people. He will bring his promises to them and he will do so before God brings his wrath upon the earth the seven year period of tribulation. Again, he's not talking about human wrath. He's not talking about final eschatological wrath and hell. He's talking about a specific wrath, which he describes in Second Thessalonians, in which Christ will return from earth to and that Christ will bring to the earth for its rebellion, for those who have rejected the gospel. So this actually is a promise that fits with the risen Lord's words to the church in Revelation chapter 3, verse 10. He says, speaking to the church at Smyrna, again, you can just, uh, uh, just listen to it. He says there, or excuse me, forgive me, I was looking at chapter 2, verse 10, uh, to the message to the church at Philadelphia. He says this as an encouragement to them, verse 10, because you have kept the word of my perseverance, I will keep you from the hour of testing, that which is to come, about to come upon the whole earth to test those who dwell upon the earth. In other words, I'm going to keep you from this hour of testing. What is this hour of testing? This hour of testing is what he's going to explain in the rest of Revelation, this, this unique judgment of God. He's saying, I'm going to keep you from that. It's very similar to what he's saying, Paul is saying to the Thessalonians here, that you're not going to experience this wrath that is to come, but what you do have to anticipate from God is to be with him, for the Lord to come and take you to be with him. Notice in verse 15. For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remaining until the coming of the Lord will not precede those who have fallen asleep. Will not precede those who have fallen asleep. Now notice here that he's, he's identifying two groups. He's identifying one group, those who are alive and remain. The second group is those who have fallen asleep. 
So it's those who are alive and remain and those who are fallen asleep. Both will be a part of this return from heaven. Both groups will be received to the Lord, will be taken by the Lord uh, to be with him. So this is the church that is present on the earth at the time of his coming to gather his saints. Secondly, notice this. And I, I alluded to this earlier, but this is an event that is imminent. That is to say that it could happen at any moment. It could happen at any moment. And this, in fact, is a distinction between the rapture and the second coming of Christ. And this is, a, this is an event that Paul is talking about that, that can happen, that will be like a thief in the night, that will be unexpected, that could happen at any moment. The second coming is an event that will clearly happen at the end of a defined period, namely the seven-year period of the tribulation. And with all of the signs that will come with it, all of the destructions, the rise of the Antichrist, and so forth, the sign of the beast, and so forth. That, that is an event that will have signs that preceded and should be expected and should be known by those who are believers on the earth at that time. But, but here, Paul is speaking of an event that is unexpected, of an event that uh, we anticipate to happen at any moment. There's a sense here, even when he said, uses the we, in which he indicates that he himself wasn't exactly sure when this was going to take place. And it at least opens to the idea that maybe Paul thought it could happen in his lifetime. Uh, you want to take that too far, but it is at least it could happen at any time. And this is common. This was, in fact, how the Lord Jesus spoke of this event as well in Matthew chapter 24. Matthew chapter 24. Let me just allude to this briefly. Remember that here in Matthew 24, Jesus is answering questions of the apostles about uh, when, essentially, when is he going to return? When is he going to return? When is this destruction going to come? Now, now, what prompted this was his statement uh, about the, or their statement about the temple and it's beautiful. And Jesus is telling them that's going to be destroyed. And then they ask, you know, when are these things going to take place? And he immediately takes them to this ultimate event of his return. And this, this which, is, which is what they were, were really wanting to know. When, are, when is there going to be a finality uh, to uh, your return and to your establishment of your kingdom as the Messiah. And so he, he tells them, uh, they said in verse three, tell us when will these things happen and what will be the sign of your coming and the end of the age? And so that's what they were really getting at. And that's what he, what he answers. And he, he actually answers their question in reverse order. He asks, they said, what will be the sign of your coming? And then what will be the end of the age? And so he answers first, those events that will mark the end of the age. And then he later will answer the first questions. What will be the sign of his coming? And if you jumped forward, so he talks about this, the rise of the, uh, the, the different judgments that are going to come on the earth. We've covered this in the past that will match the judgments as even precisely as we see them laid out in Revelation 6 uh, following. He talks about in verse 15, this this abomination of desolation, as was spoken of in Daniel, this will be the rise of the Antichrist and a unique wrath that's poured out on the nation of Israel that was prophesied by Daniel. 
And then he talks about in verse 29 through 31, this return of the Lord, which will come at the end of the age. He says, but of that day, and he, and he uses a term here that uh, reflects this. He's moving on to a different subject. And now he's, he's answering another question. But of that day, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son, but the Father alone. For the coming of the Son of Man will be just like the days of Noah. What were the days of Noah? Well, it's hard to put that into the tribulation period because there's going to be incredibly unique judgments of God and major destruction that happens during that time. It's hard to put it exactly at that time because he said already that it's a defined period that they knew was going to be seven years from Daniel's last week, the 70th week of Daniel and that prophet. It was, it was a unique time that was going to be at the end of the age. He says here they were, they were just like in the days of Noah. In other words, life was going on as, as normal, eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage until the day that Noah entered the ark. And they did not understand until the flood came and took them all away. And so will the coming of the Son of Man be. And then there will be two men in the field. Two men in the field. One will be taken and one will be left. Two women will be grinding at the mill. One will be taken. One will be left. In other words, there's an event that is imminent. Now, there's a lot of discussion on that passage. We've looked at this in the past. But it's very possible, and I would say even likely to see that as a reference to this coming of the Lord where he is going to gather his own to himself. Some want to take the ones that are taken or taken to judgment and the ones that are left are left to go into the kingdom. But it's, it's also very possible and reasonable to see that those who are taken are the ones who are taken to be with the Lord and the ones who are left are the ones who are left to experience the judgments of God. If you'll remember following that illustration, once they entered into the ark, what happened? The judgments of God were released. And so it will be with the rapture. Once Christ takes the church to himself, that will then be the wrath of God that Paul spoke of to the Thessalonians that will be brought to the earth that the church will be spared from. Again, we're not talking about the wrath of man here. We're talking about specifically the wrath of God, specifically the wrath of God. That's actually the same pattern that we'd see here in 1 Thessalonians 4. As he talks about the church being caught up with him, again, remember what he's already established, the church that doesn't experience this wrath that is to come. We have after they are taken, the church is taken up with the Lord. And then we have in verse 2 of chapter 5, the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night, immediately following uh, this event. And destruction will come upon them suddenly like labor pains. The day of the Lord is a discussion in itself. Simply note this, the day of the Lord speaks of an entire complex of events that are all related to judgment. It's an entire complex of events related to judgment. Here, the day of the Lord is that day that begins at the beginning of the tribulation and extends uh, either to the end of the tribulation or probably more accurately to the end of the millennial kingdom in the final rebellion against the Lord. The day of the Lord is specifically a phrase used to speak of this eschatological or this final wrath of God that's coming on the earth, which again would make sense and consistent with the Lord's teaching in Matthew 24, Paul's teaching in Thessalonians and other places that the church will be gone and then this wrath will come and it will be a final wrath of God on the earth. 
He says again, and again, that's the context there at the end of that chapter. For God has not destined us for wrath, but attaining salvation through Jesus Christ, which is most likely a reference there, again, to the rapture, to the rapture. Notice what he says as well in verse 54, chapter 4, verse 15. But we say to you by the word of the Lord that we who are alive and remain and remaining or remain until the coming of the Lord will not precede those who are, have fallen asleep. And of course, the encouragement here is that we'll all meet the Lord together. And that's what he says in verse 16. For... The Lord himself, why will we not proceed then? Why are we to find encouragement? For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ shall rise first. This is this Christ coming and calling his church to be with him. It is a dramatic event. It's a dramatic event. Some people speak of a secret rapture, that the church will be just secretly kind of hiddenly raptured uh, up to the Lord, but it's not a secret here. He says it comes with a shout, or it could be said a cry of command. Uh, the voice of the archangel, the trumpet of God, these could be three distinct sounds or sounds that are all connected uh, simultaneously with this one event to be seen as one event. It will be visible. It will be seen not necessarily understood, and it will most likely be heard, though not necessarily understood there as well. And we won't turn there. You can look on your own, but it's very similar to when the Father spoke to the Lord Jesus in John chapter 12. It says those around heard sounds. It was like them, but they didn't understand what it meant. The same as when the Lord spoke to Paul on the Damascus road. They heard the sound. Those who were with him, they saw the light, but they didn't understand what the event was. It wasn't discernible. It was only discernible to the Apostle Paul. It's very, it's probably that is very similar to something like that. It will be a command, one that's understood and heard and by those who are believers, those whom the Lord is calling to himself, but will be a mystery, something inexplicable to the rest of the earth, to those who are remaining. It'll be supernatural. It'll be startling. It'll be frightening to the rest of the world. It will be misunderstood and even confusing. Now I should note here that the trumpet here that he mentions in verse 16 with the voice with the trumpet of God should not be confused with the great trumpet of Matthew chapter 24, 31. And there's a variety of reasons for that. This trumpet is in fact to call the dead and alive in Christ to himself in the air. The great trumpet of Matthew 24 is to call the elect who are on the earth, but there's no mention of the dead being raised in Christ or of the resurrection uh, specifically there. Now, that is very likely those who are still on the earth in the tribulation period, the martyr saints, and even of Israel who had uh, trusted in the Lord during this time. More importantly, the return of Matthew 24, 31 is after the terrible judgments of the tribulation, again, which is not in view here in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. So we shouldn't confuse uh, those two trumpets. These are two different trumpets. This is a trumpet in which God calls his people to salvation, to salvation before this wrath that he is going to unleash on the earth. At this time, he says that those who are dead in Christ or 
And those who are alive and remain will be caught up with the Lord in the air. And this is a dramatic term. This is really a striking language. He says in verse 17, snatched up is the idea. Will be taken and just brought up uh, to the Lord in an instant. It will be instantaneous that that the command will come and the, the new bodies will be received that we'll receive. And we will immediately be brought up to the Lord, taken with him to meet him there and then off to be with him. And as we noted earlier, to be with him, to receive the judgment of rewards in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and to await the final return of him to the earth. This is a glorious, glorious hope. This is what Paul longed for in 2 Corinthians 5, as I mentioned earlier. It's the moment that he anticipated when he was writing to the Philippians, when he said this in chapter 3, verse 21. It says, Our citizenship is in heaven, from which we eagerly wait for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform the body of our humble estate into conformity with the body of his glory by the exertion of his power he has even to subject all things to himself. This is that glorious event when he will display his power and transform our bodies. I mean, what could what could ever compare to that? What could compare to that? We watched a Marvel movie last night. We watched some of them, and they're they're fun and entertaining, and so forth. And uh, we we watched Thor, and you know, with his big hammer and and so forth. And as, as entertaining as that might be to watch as a movie, what can compare to the glory of the return of Jesus Christ? What a profound, majestic mystery that the Son of God will return, claim his own, bring his judgments, which are real, not imagined on the earth, but also bring about his salvation, which is just as real to his people who have trusted him. Glorious, glorious hope that we have. And it is the event that we are waiting for next. And it is after this event, as we are taken up, this tribulation period will begin. Christ will return at the end. And then after that will be the millennial kingdom. A few other events in between, but it will be the establishment of his kingdom on earth. And he says in verse 17b, in this event, that we will meet the Lord in the air, and so we shall always be with the Lord. He actually says we'll meet the Lord in the clouds. And the clouds here is just simply to, uh, is, a, is a demonstration of his presence. Speak of his presence like the cloud that filled the temple. Uh, we considered a few weeks ago in the tabernacle to mark God's presence there. The cloud that led Israel out of Egypt and was with them during the day and the pillar of fire at night the cloud that surrounded Mount Sinai. It has to do with the presence of God. It is to say here in this visible demonstration of this glorious presence of the Lord, this glorious presence of the Lord, this divine presence, this majestic presence, is this personal presence of the Lord. And this is what we long for. And this is what we long for. Notice here, just as a point of interest, too, to distinguish this, when Christ returns in Matthew chapter 19, he returns with the saints all the way down to earth. That's not the picture that we have here. 
He's returning in Matthew 19 with the saints to judgment, returning with them at the end of this period of his wrath. Here in 1 Thessalonians 4, that's not it. He's calling the saints up to be with him, to take them to be with him, to take them to be with him to heaven. So we noted earlier, it's not from heaven, but to heaven, to be with him, to be with him forever. And so here this is, again, to be distinguished from the second coming. This is his returning to be, to gather his people to be with him. This is, in fact, the wonderful promise of Jesus to his disciples. Don't turn there. I'm just going to mention it. In John chapter 14, he says, don't let your heart be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you, for I go to prepare a place for you. If I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. Again, that is the hope of God's people, to be with the Lord. We can experience his presence in part now as we pray. We have the fellowship of the Spirit. We have that unique ministry of the Spirit to us as we are united to Christ and in Christ fellowship with the Father, with the risen Lord, by the Spirit. But what we long for is not that kind of limited fellowship, but the full glory of our salvation, which is to be with the Lord forever. Be be with the Lord forever. Those are some of the most precious words. Well, let me just close with this. I know there's probably a lot more to be said. And if we were sitting around a table and talking about these things, there'd be questions that we'd be addressing and other passages we'd be looking at. But I want to give you the big picture here and at least set in your mind that this is the hope that we have, that Christ will return for us. It doesn't mean we're spared from the troubles of this world. It doesn't even mean, of course, as the church knows around the world now, that we're not, that we're not spared from great persecutions of men. But it does mean that we are spared gloriously from the wrath of God and that we have as our hope and our certain hope and promise that we will be with him forever. He will return for us. So let me just give you two implications and I'm just gonna mention these. One is it means that we should be constantly filled with an attitude of gratitude. We should live a life of gratitude that we have been spared from God's wrath. Sometimes people say that they're kind of curious. They want to, you know, about the tribulation and they, they almost in, in, imply that they'd want to be here to see it. And no, you don't. It's terrible beyond what we can imagine. And we can't even imagine eternal wrath of separated from God and hell. But the glorious truth is that we have been saved from that. Christ has borne that wrath on the cross for all who trust in him, for his elect, for those who come to him in faith. We have been spared from the wrath of God and that we who are guilty and by ourselves condemned have this hope that there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. In fact, not only is there no condemnation, there is adoption of sons by which we cry out, Abba, Father. There is the fellowship of the Spirit who convinces us of that and teaches that to our spirit. There is the hope that we have in Christ that we will be forever with him. That's the glory. We who deserve wrath have been spared from the wrath, but eternal wrath and even this wrath that's going to come on the earth. Secondly, it means then that we should live in holiness and hope of being with Christ. The anticipation of his coming doesn't produce laziness or a lack of concern, actually quite the opposite. 
it should produce, as Paul talks about in 1 Corinthians 15, uh, a fervent diligence, knowing that our work in the Lord is not in vain. It should remind us, as Paul said to the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, that we should live, want to live lives that are pleasing to the Lord. Thinking of these future events, Paul said in 2 Corinthians 5, therefore we have as our ambition, whether at home or absent, to be pleasing to him. Why? For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may be recompensed for his deeds in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. That's the judgment of rewards. And that is that hope then that keeps us to live soberly and to want to live in a way that pleases the Lord here and to be thankful to the Lord that he has given us these precious and magnificent promises uh, in his son. Let me pray for us. Father, thank you for these promises. And there is so much to it, Lord. And, and there are certainly your people who understand some of the details of this uh, in different ways. But what we do know is this glorious truth that you will return for your church, that those who are alive and remaining in you at your return, those who have died in you at your return will be caught up to meet you in the air and to live with you forever. That is our hope, Lord. We want to be with you forever. We want to be in the presence of the Father and the saints who have gone before and all of the holy angels. But at the center of all of that, as glorious and majestic and profoundly wonderful as all of those things will be, what our hearts desire is you, is you. And may that heart desire be manifest, not only what we hope by what we hope for in the future, but may that hope for the future be shown to be real now as we seek you in your presence, in the pres uh, your presence in the present time, as we seek you in prayer, as we seek you with obedience of life, as we seek to be pleasing to you, as Paul said as we seek to know you in your word, as we seek to serve you diligently in this world, to trust you and to walk with you by your spirit who is in us. We thank you again for these precious promises and we pray these things, our Lord, in the name of you who died and rose again for us. Amen. Well, God willing, we'll see you next week. Lord bless you.